Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. The Female Body Bible, Baz, your new book came out earlier this year. I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about the project, who you worked with on it, and why you felt it was so important to get this title out there. Yeah. Um, so I've been a personal trainer and a fitness coach and a female health coach for years now. And there was just some things that women just don't know about themselves. And I think that most men assume us women know how to be women and we know um, what sports bra should fit us. We know how to manage our menstrual cycle symptoms. We know how to do our pelvic floor exercises. But the reality is that we kind of don't know how to do anything. And that's nobody's fault. It's just that that education is not passed down through the generations. And also, we just don't get it anywhere else. And within the world of sport and fitness, no one within those professions has that education either. So, The three, so it was myself, we've got an NHS doctor, I've got an exercise physiologist. And, you know, collectively, we were all working with women on one-to-one basis going, God, I don't even know the basics. How amazing would it be if we had, like, the go-to place where you could get really, really credible, evidence-based information, but in a way that isn't medical, isn't really difficult to read, isn't overly scientific. So it's quite, uh, it's a very easy, entertaining read. And so that was one reason. And also I think that we were just becoming more and more aware that this space was, it's not saturated, but it's definitely becoming fuller of people with opinions and people with, um, you know, solutions. And we're like, actually, they, they're, they're, they're not coming from a from a good place, and so they they we were like, you know what, we we want to create a go to place where people can trust the source of information. So those were the main two reasons, really, for us uh, publishing the book. Going into the project, what were your main misconceptions, the main myths you wanted to correct? Were there any that had more prominence or a greater hierarchy than others that you really wanted to get that information out there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the cliched one that women are small men, like it's like, and I think that that kind of like, actually we'll just, we'll just, women do thir- eat 30% less than men, lift 30% less than men, run 30% slower than men. I was like, we just needed to go, do you know what? Like where most women are smaller than men, but the reality is there's a lot, there are far more differences than just our shape and size and, and ability to lift and, and all that kind of stuff. So we wanted to cut through that. I think there was um, there was lots of noise. Well, there is lots of noise around the menstrual cycle and how um, you can train around your cycle, you can eat around your cycle, you can control your cycle. And we just wanted to kind of say, look, 6% of sports science research is done exclusively on females. Like, so basically hardly any. And that's not just on the menstrual cycle. That's the entirety of female health. So we are not in a place where we can generalize evidence to a whole population. Like you might be able to read a research paper and go, oh, that's really interesting. Like it's fascinating that this one research study has shown that if you strength, if you do more strength training in the first two weeks of your cycle, 
compared to the, the last two weeks of your cycle, you could get that, you know, you could get bigger gains than if you evenly distributed your strength sessions over the month. But we can't generalize that to the whole of a hockey team or the whole of a CrossFit box or, or the entire female population. We can just use that and go, oh, like, could, is that going to work for me? No, it's not. Okay. Well, let, and, and so we wanted to just kind of present people with the reality that actually we don't know, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. What that means is that you as a female, the, the, if, if people only take away, like I'm only worried three or four minutes into this, but if people only take away one thing from this podcast, it's that you as a, as a woman, you, your, your connection with your body is enough, right? Your connection is, is enough. Like we don't need to be told what to do by the experts, but what we need to do is really start to tap in to what are our experiences of going on, what's going on, and how do we adapt our training and our nutrition and our sleep and our health and our well-being and all that stuff to like what our bodies are experiencing. And we don't, we do need loads more research and evidence, but we don't have to wait five, 10, 15 years for that to filter through. Why do you think there is such a disconnect between women knowing how best to use their own bodies and what's right for them? Because is it down to taboo? You mentioned the book, you know, taboo is such a huge area when it comes to women's health issues. Is this kind of the fundamental starting point of where there is that lack of connection between the information out there and women being able to use it? I could blame the patriarchy, <laughs> which, which <laughs> I think that, well, and Western, and Western society, I think that if you go into the developing world and if you go into the more traditional cultures in the world there is there is a connection to our bodies whoever you are right so whoever you are there is there's a connection to everything isn't there there's a connection to the land there's a connection to the seasons there's a connection to who you are and your status within your within your culture and and, and what everyone has a very very clear role and as a female you will even as a young girl, if there's a woman in your community having a baby, you would have a role in that birth. And that might be getting water. It might be mopping her brow. It might be providing food. It doesn't really matter what your role is, but you've seen it. You've seen it and you've experienced it. So it's normal. It's normal for you. You un So when it's your time in life to have children, you've gone, so it's not a shock because it's like, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen like what can happen, what can go right, what can go wrong. It's the same when women menstruate, you'll have had a role in supporting people around you to menstruate. It's the same with death. It's the same with illness. Like when you're not hidden away from all these things happening in life. And I think that in the West, as we, as, as women have tried to get into the workplace and do the same jobs as men, we've had to do them like men, not as women. As we've, um, uh, you know, we, we, you know, you go to supermarkets, you can get whatever food you want, whenever you want to. We're not connected to, to that. And, it, and I just think it's that lack of connection to us and the world. And that's quite a big, deep philosophical kind of, you know, answer. But I genuinely feel it is like I've had two children. I've got a sister. I've got a mum. I've got lots of girlfriends around me. The first time I had, when I went into the hospital to have that baby, it was the first experience of any of that. And I'm like, and it, it was, horrendous and a massive shock but had I because it just wasn't normal and I think that what we're you know and childbirth is an extreme version of that but if you're I honestly work I you know we have messages from women every day who are like I I can't leave the house when I'm on my period because I'm bleeding so much is that normal it's like no like that's you're that's not normal but because no one in their world's talking about it they don't know that and I think that's for me um 
where that disconnect is as being female. We actually haven't been able to show up as females. We've been able to go to CrossFit gyms and yogas and, 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 you know, do sport, but the female parts of us have not been able to show up just this, just kind of just the male parts. There's so much I want to unpack from that, Baz. <laughs> but I, want, I wanted to start on, on kind of this concept of normalization because I think from my experience and in preparation of this interview, I spoke to lots of women I know to go, what should I ask you? Because obviously they're much better placed to have questions than I am. And it was almost this normalization. I've got something wrong with me, but I go and see a medical, I go and see my male GP and it's normalized. Oh, you know, you've, you've, um, PCOS, just go on the pill or you've had this issue post-pregnancy, we'll never lift again. And it's almost like just shutting down of female health problems, which I think, um, if it's from a male perspective, there'd be all sorts of examinations and inquiries to try and find an answer. Is this a common thing that's kind of normalization of female problems and sort of just sweeping under the carpet? What you've just said there is essentially we've been medicalized. So it doesn't matter what your issue is with regards to female health, whether it's minor or major, the only place you can go is the doctor. Right. So the the fitness industry, the sports industry is an untapped resource in terms of their expertise. Like we are coaches. We are we are experts. We can we understand bodies. You look at a body, you know how to coach it. You know how to coach the person that shows up in front of you. Even if you've had no lived experience, I was doing an interview the other day and I said, look, I've never had cancer. I've never been overweight. I've never um I, I, I've never like had a had a knee injury. I have coached people brilliantly with all of those with all of those conditions. And so, actually, female health is just shrouded in this taboo, and it means that actually many men, being quite honest, many men feel very very uncomfortable. Or young women who haven't been menopausal might feel like, well, I've I've never been menopausal. How on earth could I talk to a midlife woman about her menopause? It's like you train people like. Every, all day, every day that you have no, you've had no lived experience of what they're going through, but you work it out because you're a trainer. So that's one thing. And I think that, you know, the, um, a lot of the stuff that, um, that is considered female health isn't life threatening. Okay. So it might be your, you, you just feel uncomfortable. Exercise doesn't feel great. You're, you might leak urine a little bit, or you might have a little bit of, um, like tummy cramps for a few days. Some people might have extreme versions of this, but many women would, it would just be like an, an annoyance. It's like, God, like, who do I talk to? Like, it's not bad enough to go to my GP. It's not bad enough, or I just literally do not have time to even attempt to get a GP appointment, but either of those things. So I'll just, I'll just put up with it and I'll just crack on. Whereas actually, if the fitness industry, if the sports industry just like embraced it and, and, and owned it, then, then we could, we could really create these environments where we don't, it's, it's not that I want this to be talked about all day, every day and everyone to be oversharing and everyone like show up with all of their female health problems. You're like, I just want to play football. Can we just play football before? It's just that we just need a space where it's okay to talk about it if we want to. And I know that when I was working in the fe- as a female health coach, actually, you know, for the first few sessions, it's all we talked about. It's like, right, let's sort this out. Let's track your cycle. Let's get all around that. But actually, once you've kind of done the bit of the groundwork, you can then get into the zone. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's – it does need to be normalised and we need to not remove it from the medical profession but just leave them – to look after the people that really need their help. And the fitness and sports industry can honestly do so much great stuff in this space. 
I've spoken to, to women who've gone and seen the doctor, you know, around perimenopause and saying, you know, I'm tired, I'm stressed and almost being palmed off. Well, of course you are. You've got young kids, you're mm. running a household, you've got a full-time job. And it's almost like, what, which is the chicken and the egg here? Are they struggling because of what's going on with their bodies? And, and maybe by fixing that would fix some of the other problems they have. Is this, again, another common theme in terms of being treating it almost like, oh, of course you're a bit tired. And, and it's almost like a, it's an inconvenience rather than something that, that requires dramatic yeah. intervention. So again, it's just a case of not giving it the due care and attention to disease needs because A, the, the, the GP may be male, so is it really understanding? And then it's not seen as something that's terminal. Yes. Uh, um, and my one of my co-founders is a GP, right? So I, um, I never GP bash ever, but... The reality is that until the until Davina McCall did her two documentaries on the menopause uh, with Louise Newsom, like GP, like the, the level of understanding in this country around menopause was very, very low. Um, it then suddenly swat, the pendulum swung, like where anyone in their 40s was men perimenopausal and needed to go to their GP and needed to ask for, ask for HRT. But also, you know, Louise Newsom did an absolutely fantastic job at putting in medical training for GPs. So, their level of education is much better. And also women are going much sooner to go and ask for help and support with their GP. Um, the reality is in that example that you've just given is that midlife is stress, is stressful. Like it is, it doesn't matter. Your life is stressful. You've got kids or you've got older parents or you've got both. You've got a full time job. You've got money worries. You've got relationships that you've been in for a while and like their problem, like they might be a problem too. Like, so your life is stressful. For women going through perimenopause, um, chemically their bodies are stressed because the you know you're on this hormonal roller coaster where your ovaries have started to stop producing as much estrogen. We have estrogen receptors around the whole of our bodies, so that's why the symptoms of perimenopause are everywhere. It's not just kind of contained within your uterus. It's your brain. It's your weight. It's your it's your joints. It's your hair. It's your skin. It's your personality. It's everything. So you've got chemical stress and lifestyle stress. Now, if you're a woman that's used to being in control of their life and is like, do you know what? I know what my formula is. Like, I know what my formula is. I know that so I my my background was was as an elite athlete and so I was super super controlled and I knew everything that I had to do to get the results that I wanted. I'm now in a different stage of life where I've got two children. I work full time. I've got most some people might not say this, but I do have a more relaxed approach to my lifestyle. But I know I know how much I need to be outside every day. How many times a week I need to go to the gym and broadly speaking, what I need to eat most of the time. I am not, I am not prescriptive, but I know what my formula is. Now, many menopausal women will say, I know what my formula is, but I'm doing everything right. But I'm, I've put on weight. I'm now leaking despite the fact I've not changed anything or I've just got this massive confusion. And you're like, what do I do? Like the tools that have worked for me in the past are no longer working. And my my trainer, my coach, my doesn't know what to do either. And I think that becomes a very, very confusing place to be as a woman. And it's that like we, but you know, and, and it can be, especially if you are so aligned with like what you look like, what you're capable of doing, how hard you want to be working, that can be quite a challenging state to be experiencing. I guess if you're coming from a point, as you say, where everything previously has worked and now the exact same thing doesn't, it's a loss of confidence totally. and another thing that adds to the problem. So 
Enough about the problems. Let's look at the solutions. You mentioned at the start of the call information. I, I, I assume you're alluding to social media here because there is so much information out there around women's health. What's your issue with it? Because you mentioned you wrote the book in response to mm. the fact that a lot of it wasn't great. Is it a lot of, do you know, what? I'm not going to put words in your mouth. What's the problem with the amount of information out there now? I have no problem with people sharing their lived experience of their of their life. Like, no problem. That's social media. The problem is that that is one person's lived experience of endometriosis or, you know, PCOS or managing men- or tracking their cycle, whatever that is. We do not. And then we have these very clever doctors and these very clever academics. We don't have we don't have an NHS or a or a, a TED talk platform or a place where you go I can go there and I can trust that that information is the right information that's my go-to resource and I think that is my that is my problem I don't it's I'm going to connect it like and this might be a bit of a bit of a leap but I'm going to kind of like you there's a lot of talk about sex education with children and it's like why why are so many teenage boys addicted to porn and everyone says it's porn porn's a problem like but actually, when you talk to people in the porn industry, they're like, porn isn't the problem. The problem is that that's the only place these kids are getting education. So what we need to make sure is that if social media is the only place where you get education on female health, that is a problem because it's like it is you don't know where that information is coming from. And so that's why we have come along and we're trying to create like do what we're doing because we're like, this is the go to place. We have done the work. We have the evidence. We've interpreted it in a way that everyone should be able to consume and understand it. And then, you know, of course, you know, you can watch your social media and you can go off and you can get that learning. But it's that, but you, but you've got a level of understanding where you can go, Oh, I'm not sure I agree with that. And I don't know if it would apply to me. Why doesn't that education platform exist already on something that affects you know, at least 50% of the population? Uh, that's a great question, Joe. And um, I, I, you know, the Apple Watch came out and there wasn't a menstrual cycle tracker on that Apple Watch. You could track your chromium levels. Like I genuinely have no clue what chromium does in my body, but because only men must have been sat around that design pro that design of the Apple Watch, no one thought, oh, like we've got this fully holistic, fully comprehensive health tracker. Oh, but what about, no one said, but what about a female's, you know, hormones? Um, I think, um, I do think that this space has no one's, it's so new, which is just bonkers, isn't it? In 2023, it is bonkers to think like that this is a brand new space. I think that, um, yeah, and just people, People haven't seen the opportunity. People don't get it. The, um, I think there are more men, more men making decisions. So when we, when we wrote our book and we, you know, we, you go out and you pitch to all the different publishing houses, um, the, 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 the editors, like mostly female will get it and they're like, Oh my goodness, this book's incredible. We'll absolutely get it into our committee. I promise you we'll get a result. Like very few publishing houses came back to us with a deal, like very few. And it was mostly because um, they were like, oh, I think we've I think we've already got enough books about women. I think uh, Davina's writing a book next year. It's a saturated market. And it's that. It's that kind of, you just come up, you come up against blocker after blocker after blocker because it's a new thing. 
Should the NHS be taking charge of this? Do you know what? I actually, I think no, in a way, in that like they are, they're literally there now, aren't they, to keep you alive. They are there to keep, that is all the resources there is. We're living, I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm married to a nurse. I've got a co-founder who's a GP. I know how, I know how much strain they are under. I think for me, it's, it has to be education has to take this on. So we have to educate our children in school. We have to educate boys. We have to educate girls beyond ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, period. Like that's more or less like what you get in year eight. Like we need to educate everyone around, uh, there's a, you know, um, one of our inspirations for the book was Caroline Credo Perez, who wrote Invisible Women back in 2017 now. And ours is kind of the sport and exercise version of that. And this is, this is not a female problem. It's a female issue, but everyone needs to come on board with it. So education of children, right from the word dot, like about their bodies and about female bodies has to happen. But also we have to educate the personal trainers, the, the, the PE teachers, the sports coaches of the future at 16 to 18. Female health has to be in their education as standard. At the moment, it's an add-on. So you can qualify and graduate as as whatever, and then we come along and say, oh, but by the way, you've only learned about 50% of the population do our course. They're like, no, why would I? Because I've already got my qualification and no one's telling me to do that. And so we have to be, we need the Well HQ Society needs people to be much stronger in this space and say, this isn't just putting us on a website and saying, oh, you could do the Well HQ's courses or you could learn about female health if you wanted to. It's saying, this is like safeguarding. This is like DBS checks. This is like mental health. Actually, we can't have a whole CrossFit box with like not one person understanding anything around female health because actually 80% of our client base are females. Looking forward with personalised nutrition, personalised nutrition recommendations, personalised medicine, personalised training, do you feel this could be a chink of light in terms of giving female health and wellness the attention it deserves? Because once we've all got our phones giving us our personal information, algorithms working on that, could this be something that gives us the giant leap forward you feel we need? I mean, it has to be in integrated into it, doesn't it? I think that, um, yes, I think that, but my sort of, not, not my challenge, at the moment, there is so much data. You could get so much data on yourself, couldn't you? Like where where things are accurately measuring stuff. <laughs> um, but it's like, what do you do with that? And so what we are huge advocates of, and that's what the whole point of our book is, is that you read that and you understand your body. You take control of your body and then you can make the right decisions for you. And it's not about something telling you that something's about to happen because we don't, we, because we don't have the evidence base right now. But like you say, it's a, this, the tech is just, it, it's such an opportunity if done in the right way. Um, and we don't, at the moment, we don't want kind of, you know, um, data being put into a generalized algorithm that actually has nothing to do with menopausal women or women who, what, you know, um, of, of younger ages. We need to get, quite specific in terms of how we're using that data and applying it. So the one that you could wave your magic wand today, Baz, what's the one thing that you would instigate straight away? It would almost be a legal requirement for women's health education to be mandatory for any profession involved in dealing with women. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, and I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't think that shouldn't be a shock. Like, there shouldn't be. And, but it's like, I just... Honestly, it just blows my mind that we've got, you know, I talk with directors of sport of girls' schools who are men We've had one lesson in year eight about basically how not to get a girl pregnant. And now they are in charge of 
like and and they're doing a great job like they are they, they're not it's not that everything they've learned is total rubbish it's that it's just not enough it's not enough and we know that girls are exercising a lot less they are a lot less active than men and girls and women and when we do do exercise we get injured at much higher rates so we have to do the only way we're going to change that is if we're educating those that are caring for girls and women why do you think Baz, then there is so much resistance to what you've suggested like a very sensible change to to how education is done to to empower people to then empower women themselves where's the resistance coming from um i think the resistance is there because getting down to it there isn't a budget line there is not a budget line for female health education so we can do these podcasts we can go and i go and talk at conferences all the time and there'll be people from safeguarding there there'll be people from innovation there and they're like oh my goodness like we have just spent millions of pounds on making our wheels rounder and our skin suits tighter or we spent millions of pounds like innovating in you know in the space of education how have we missed this and they're like, how have we missed this bit? And which, and so then they get it. But then actually everyone goes back to the workplaces to do their day jobs. And they then have to create, they then have to create almost a department or a budget line or support. And they have to convince other people. And, they, and it just loses momentum. And I think that um, for us, we act, we're working with one governing, well, we're working with many governing bodies, but we're working with one in particular who is about to mandate that every single coach in that sport work does the fem- does our female body course. And if they don't, they are going to get fined. Now, that sounds quite strict. But I'm like, do you know what? That's going to get this across the line. And I think that that is we need to we need to have a carrot and the stick approach. But it's taken someone really, really determined to make this happen in that particular sport because they've seen like the impact that not having people educated around female health is having. And how confident are you then, Baz? Is this like the, the the first one, and then like dominoes, they're gonna they're gonna fall into line? How how confident would you would you would you rate your chances of succeeding here? It will be successful. Whether we can keep the business going until it is successful is another question, and that is honestly that is that is the rub of it. It's that um, on a month by month month basis, it's, it, this is a tough situation that we're in. But I know that. That I absolutely know because of the conversations I'm having with big governing bodies, with big brands. I'm even, you know, I'm even at the House of Commons talking with government. Like those conversations are happening, but this is slow. In the meantime, we've got to kind of keep ourselves going um, by taking on, you know, work that what we have, not not whatever's out there, but like, you know, kind of like taking on like the smaller pieces of work. But for sure, this this can't not happen, can it? It just can't not happen. It absolutely, and I think probably we're slightly ahead of the curve, and so we're having to create the market and, and create the noise. But I'm I am absolutely sure this is going to work. It seems as though it's almost one of those problems that is just almost maybe too big for people to get their head around. It's like, well, where do, where do we begin? And that it's easier for for men in that gate, you know, who do hold the purse strings to think. I don't want to spend all this money on my watch because where do we begin? So I'll put my head in the sand, and it could be the next guy's problem. Absolutely right, and we were working. You know, I've been trying to get into um, quite a high-end gym chain recently, and I just heard last week that they'd taken all of their PTs to learn how to row. Right, because within their within their gym offering, they have nine minutes of rowing in one of their classes. They've taken all these gym instructors. They've gone to a great rowing club. They've done. They've got on the water. They've done a day there. Like I reckon that probably cost a couple of grand, probably, like to get all those trainers trained up. Can I get a female health education into it? No. And it's because why are they not getting 
why are they not? Because it's because like you say, it's like oh, it's too big. Like I don't even. And I also they all they also describe it as a can of worms. It's almost and I'm like, hang on, you're you're describing women as a can of worms. But that's kind of what happens is they say, well, if one as soon as we open this can of worms, like where's it going to stop? And it's that, and I think it's and it's the fear of like how enormous this could become. There still seems to be an awful lot of myths and misconceptions around training during pregnancy with everyone seemingly having a different idea of what women can or can't do. Buzz, could you give us your view? What is kind of your golden rules of how someone can train during pregnancy? Yeah, this space is evolving really quickly. I mean, very sadly, only 8% of personal trainers have a pre and postnatal qualification. And what I have observed in the fitness space is that most women don't want to go and find a pre and postnatal trainer actually they they just want to stay because that that sense of community is so strong what with whatever sport and fitness they're doing they want to stay there but yet the, the trainers around them don't really know how to support this life stage i did my pre and postnatal qualification with an absolutely pioneering lady like over 10 years ago now probably like 12 13 years ago she was called jenny burrell she's still in the game she's absolutely brilliant but she she was teaching us how to coach women to squat and deadlift and lunge and lift weights. And the backlash from her pre and postnatal qualification from the sector was huge because at that stage in the game, it was like rest, mummy yoga, don't do very much. And she was like, hang on a minute. If you've, if you, if you're on baby number two, you are at home, like racing around after a toddler, you need to be fit. And this is really functional movement. So. I kind of that's my that's my background if you like and also that was approached to my body when I had my uh when I had my children the it's you've got people who are who kind of ignore the fact they are pregnant right so they are kind of like the people that like I just want to keep on training get my head down and almost and they might be part of a, a, a situation where there's a badge of honor if you can lift weights until a certain uh, month, if you can run up until like eight months pregnant. It's just this like external you know, validation of like um, like how successful you are and then how quickly you can get back. It's like, oh, like, you're, oh my God, look at you. You're amazing. Like I have no time for that. For me, that is utter nonsense. And I, I, I have, and I, and it really frustrates me that kind of badge of honor approach to like your pregnancy and your attitude to training. What I am a much bigger fan of is, well, first of all, you have your experience of pregnancy, your birth experience, your ability to cut, like your, how your body is, has, is so out of your control, right? There are things that you can do, but actually sometimes you are just served up a really, really hard situation. And that's not because you're lazy or unmotivated. It's, it's just, it's just what's happened. And those people need to have that, that like, right, I, I'm going to get you back to running. I'm going to get you back to netball. I'm going to get you back to CrossFit, but this is going to take this much time. And we need to, we need to acknowledge that your partner's left you. You've got no money. You've got no childcare. You've had no sleep. Like, all of that stuff has to be acknowledged and then we work from that place. And I think you have to you have to really hear pregnant women and postnatal women and, and fully hear their whole life and then work with them from there. You can't come in at all, at all, with this life stage in particular, with a, you stick with me, I've got you, I'll lose you this dress size, we'll smash this out, you're going to do an Ironman in three months, right, let's crack on. And... Some women will come to you wanting that, 
but you've just got to hold that space and say, right, like let's let's just take a step back, take a beat. I will I will get you whatever results you want, but we need to work on the time frame. And it and for me, it's actually it's often a massive massive shift in a woman's uh, connection with their body because it's like we need to like you need to tell me all the information your body is giving you, and let's work with that. Why do you still think there is so so many people or so many so-called experts saying that women should just take it easy during pregnancy? They shouldn't do any exercise almost from the moment they've, they've realised that they're pregnant. Do you still encounter this this mindset of you just need to rest for, for nine months, even though you say that's not practical or advisable? I mean, there are some cultures that that's just their belief. There are some cultures that just, just fundamentally believe that that's kind of, you know, you shouldn't, rest is best. Um, and also I think that the medical and midwifery profession as a rule, like not all, not all midwives, but as a rule, don't understand exercise. I, they're, they're not, they don't tend to love exercise. They will say, be active. They will say, do it. It's a very generalized term. So actually those people that, um, that, that you're getting medical advice from don't always understand the space you're in. I also think that for, and more and more women, more if you've if you've experienced baby loss, if you've experienced IVF, if you've had to spend, if you've had any trauma in terms of actually getting pregnant, there is this huge nervousness around doing harm, right? And it's that if uh, I don't want to drink a cappuccino, I don't want to eat pineapple, I don't want to do any exercise because I'm really worried about getting it wrong, and that and that. And and so to have trust in a professional that says, do you know what? Like, let's just take this a step at a time. Let's just see what you can do. Actually, and to understand and to explain to you the science and you know the the, the how important the pelvic floor and the core work is and the benefits that's going to make for you. And so it's it's um yeah I, I I don't come across them as much, but I totally understand why some women. It's that fear of getting it wrong that means you do nothing. So what would your advice be for someone who doesn't is going into pregnancy with a, a full board of health, if you like? What's your recommendation of guidelines for, for how much, how often, what type of training they can do? Yeah, I mean, I think that you um, absolutely, if you when you're in your second trimester after week 12, you go and see a women's health physiotherapist and you go private. Like it's like 80, 90 quid, depending on where you are in the country. And you get a pelvic floor exam and you say, and they're the only people that can accurately assess where your body is at. Everything else is guesswork. And that you say, right, I want to do this, this and this. I want to have this kind of childbirth. I'd love to do this after my baby's born. Is that possible? What's the risk? And they, they will be able to fully assess and support you in that. I think that, um, you know, that it's, I can't answer that question because it's kind of like everyone is so different. But what I can say is that exercise should feel good. And and that's not, you know, I've come from the elite world of sport. Like exercise never felt good. But during pregnancy, there should be absolutely no pain. You should, it should not exhaust you or floor you and it should energize you. So you want to work in that zone where it actually makes your life easier, not harder. And, and you will have, to, and some days are going to be easier than others. And it might be that actually, you know, I got to the stage, I, I, I try, I swam up until my due date, but like I actually spent longer in the shower on that last swim than I did in the water in the pool. I was like, you know what? I've done, I've done five lengths. I feel all right. Like, I'd never do five lengths. It's like, what is the point? But actually those five lengths felt amazing. And it's kind of really changing your relationship as to like, what is making my body feel good 
Well, yeah, there's no should of, could of, like, look at what everyone else is doing. It's like, what's the effect it's having on you? When it comes to life after having the baby, I think so many, again, again, having spoken to to a few women I know in preparation for this interview, women who love training, love the exercise, but due to some issues after pregnancy, you know, with the pelvic floor, with ab separation, we're told, oh, you can't do that again. You know, one person I spoke to, oh, you can never do a burpee again. And almost just this, obviously, you've got a, a cascade of, of hormones going through your system anyway. But to be told then you can't do something ever again for the rest of your life. Um, this kind of ties into other stuff we've talked about, Baz. But again, it's that that disconnect between what people are being told. Is it an education piece? Yeah. Is it an awareness piece? Yeah. Do you encounter this a lot when you're coming to you saying, I've been told I can never squat again, I can never run yeah. again because of pregnancy? Yeah. And I never, ever, you never tell a woman she can't do anything. So if I, I remember having a, uh, s- a similar situation, but it was ma- a marathon runner, and she said, I've been told I can never run again. I was like, okay. I said, right, well, the reason why they said that is because of X, Y, and Z. I said, if running, if you want to run, we can, I can get you running. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is if we, you know, you do this, you do this rehab, we get to this support. Because what the, you know, with running, I, I'd argue burpees. I think, I think most people can live without a burpee in their life. But like, let's say running, for many people, that is that sense of freedom. There'll be mental health benefits to it. They might have a buddy that they always run with. And it's like, okay, right. If running is so important to you, then this is what has to happen. You can't be constipated. You must warm up. You must do my strength and conditioning program. You're only allowed to run to begin with on a walk, you know, on a couch to 5K, and we are going to move on from there. Like, but I think that most people get that and they go, okay, I can work with that. I can absolutely work with that. If I just said no, it's like, that's not, that's, that's just a really bad answer. There are, there are all, the body is amazing and that's the thing that we have to hold on to that a female's body especially is fantastic yes we are faced with challenges on a monthly basis and we go through inevitable life stages that have a massive impact on us but our body is so good at like you know at at healing at recovering at adapting and if you have if, if if there's a certain activity that's really important to you you can do it but you can't you can't do it tomorrow and that, but that's okay. Like I remember there was, um, there was a girl that I was working with, uh, had a baby, had massive mental health issues after having this baby and also had massive pelvic floor issues, which meant that she couldn't do the, the, the CrossFit that she, that, that really helped her with her mental health. She just couldn't do it. And I worked with her. I got her all the gadgets. We got her the, you know, got the, the pants that there was these special pants that would support her pelvic floor. We got other expertise that she required. She was going to go home. Um, she was going to go home to a foreign country and she sent me a picture of her at the top of this mountain, having carried her baby up this mountain. And she was like, I'm on top of the world. And, and, and we got her there. We got her there. It took a long time and it took a lot of expertise, but we got her there. So you can and you have to. My approach with pregnant women is you need to meet them where they're at, honestly, at where is their body, where is their mental health at, and then you have to have a really positive mindset as to where you can take them, but you know, um but you can't you can't just ta- you can't just say, Oh, we you know, sod it, we're gonna crack on because we're not twenty. We haven't got twenty year old bodies where we've got a lot of life that has gone through our bodies and, and you have to respect that. The, the speed of recovery or speed of getting your body back is the common expression, right? When we still see so much societal pressure on this celeb has got back, you know, got abs back after however many weeks postpartum. 
Do you think we're ever going to see a change in that conversation about the societal pressure of, of how quickly women should or could get their bodies back? I hope so. I hope so. I think that um, from a professional point of view, um, I, the eight percent of personal trainers that are qualified, like that, is a narrative that is absolutely changing. I think I do see less and less people doing the, you know. Um, bounce back boot camps, like little black dress boot camp type. I mean, of course, they're still going to be existing, but I just think that the voices that exist in this space that are coming from a nurturing, healing, like let's get you, let's let's build you up, like that functional movement, like let's focus on you, that they're, they're, they're louder and they're becoming more credible. So I would, we absolutely have to believe that that is going to change, yeah. Especially when you mentioned the, you know, the mental health side of things as well. Seeing this constantly, if you go every time you go online on newspapers or magazines, someone's got their body back when you're already feeling that way, it can't be helping the whole mental health conversation around, you know, postnatal depression, other things that surely there's enough going on without thinking I've got to get back in a bikini. Yeah, it's, I mean, I had my, after my first child, like my mum with every best intention in the world just came in and was like, oh, like Paula Radcliffe was running 5Ks within a week of having her baby. And I'm like, okay, like, I can't move. Like, I just, I know that I've been an international, I can't actually move. Everything hurts. I'm in so much pain and agony. Like, that is really unhelpful. Now, I had a sports science degree. I had a master's. I'd been a PT for 10 years. Like, I'd been on the best rowing team in the world. But even I felt vulnerable with her saying that. I was like, oh, like, am I not good enough? But actually, I just, do you know what? You surround yourself with great people that support you and give you the right energy. But when you're in a downward spiral and when you're in a vulnerable place, you you think you're not enough, don't you? You always, doesn't matter who you are, you're like, I'm just not enough. I'm not doing enough. I need to be doing more. And I think every single life stage a woman goes through, puberty, pre-postnatal, perimenopause, menopause, we're vulnerable. And and that's why it's really important that you, you get that positive those really good, credible people around you that are like going to sort of bat away all that nonsense. I'm so glad you brought up support because as a man whose partner has gone through some of these changes, I tried to do some research and I found it pretty hard if I'm really honest to find stuff I could trust. And because I've been a fitness journalist for a while, I tend to have a pretty good radar for what I can, what I can believe and what I can't read. How big a problem is it, Baz, that there's, we've talked about the education for women and the disconnect there. What about for men? Because it seems as though men are in a prime position to offer some of the support you've needed. But we, on general, generally speaking, don't necessarily have the support structure ourselves to offer that advice and support. How big a problem is that? I I feel really strongly that we have to educate the men and we have to give you a space where you feel safe and you feel not judged and not less than to learn about the female body. So when I again when, you know, when I be, kind of came into this female health space, probably about 10 years ago now, it was a very angry feminist sisterhood kind of space. So if you attempted to be, do a pre and postnatal qualification, you'd have probably been the only man in the room, and there was definitely you'd definitely never do a menopause qualification. Like you just would like, not be on your radar. But at, the, the reality is that most PE teachers, most personal trainers, most sports coaches are men. Most women are coached by men, and so we have to take them with us. And and it and what's you know if what's it doesn't mean you have to say the word vagina. You have to teach a pelvic floor exercise. You have to fit a sports bra. You don't have to do any of that. 
But what you can do is that when a woman shows up and she's like, oh, I'm a bit tired today, and you, you, can, you can hold that space. If a bloke, I was doing another interview last week and someone said, if someone came in and said, God, I'm so hungover, I didn't sleep at all, I didn't get until three o'clock in the morning and I haven't slept. As a PT, you could totally handle that situation. But if someone says, God, like I, I just, I just had insomnia because I was, I had some, I was sweating last night and I got really hot. Like suddenly it's like, oh, like don't talk to me about that. I can't, I can't manage that. It's kind of a very similar conversation that you need to be having. But I think that if there's a female health spin on it, people get very w- worried. So my, my dream is also that we, we men need to be educated and in fact they could totally handle it i just i've just finished doing a pilot um with a with a high street gym chain with a gym group worked with 50 of their personal trainers from across the country very young guys women as well we taught them everything about the menopause and midlife and they totally got it and they were like this has massively changed i don't need to i don't i don't expect all my clients to suddenly start talking to me about this but if they do I can talk about it and I can also share with them, oh, I've been doing this course about the menopause. I really love it. Some of them will be like straight in. Some of them will be like, okay, cool. And they want to talk about something else. But they they felt that from you know, reading our book, doing our courses, they were very much like, okay, like I can handle this content. So I think absolutely we have to, we have to educate guys too. When it comes to menopause, again, there's a disconnect between medical advice or maybe what women see online as what they should be doing. For instance, I've read that, you know, strength training, eating more protein, doing some HIIT can be really beneficial for for perimenopause. What's your kind of takeaway tips, Baz, in terms of what women who are approaching this period of their life should be prioritising in terms of those big rocks for their, for optimal health and performance and well? Yeah, like what you've just said, but they're going to be 45. They might be overweight. They might have hip injuries, knee injuries. They'll have pelvic floor issues. They might have breasts that hurt every time they like do a, do a star jump or a burpee. So you've got this advice, which is absolutely correct. So from the age of, you know, from our mid thirties, our bone density starts to decline, as does our muscle mass. You can counteract that with a brilliant strength and conditioning program, but women can't move. And I know that you'd be like, what? What do you mean women can't move? We have never been taught how to lift well. So you can't just bash them into a into a CrossFit space and expect them to be able to get the most out of that training. We have to be training people how to move brilliantly. And you need to also really say, right. So when I, when I coach trainers on this, I'm like, we don't just do strength training for midlife women. We do strength training, breast health and pelvic health together. Because all of those things have to be considered and we can't just strength train at the consequence of these other things. And so the um, if, if there was one thing that I would get, you know, midlife women to do, it'd be lift weights, lift heavy weights. But that's hard, isn't it? If they don't know how to lift. And so how do we how do we get them to do that? But strength train, and I, and, and I think strength training is starting to kind of like come in as like the thing that is, is really popular. But you know, but gyms, again, they're like, they don't know what to do with a midlife woman. It's like, I don't know how to do this. Like, how do we coach her with all these injuries? She's just had babies. She's done this, that, everything else. How do we coach that kind of client? And um, for me, that's a very exciting opportunity. It shouldn't be something that people are worried about. It's like, all right, brilliant. We've got a new audience we can go after. Do you, you've obviously worked with a lot of UK-based gym chains. Are you still seeing this kind of gender stereotyping of when when men or women go to the gym? For instance, I was speaking to, to Dr. Stacey Sims recently. He says, women are just kind of shown the cardio classes. Here are the bikes. Men, there's the, there's the barbells and the dumbbells. Are you still seeing that in, in UK gyms? Because obviously, 
of a woman wants to take better care of her health and, and makes that big decision, which if you've never been before, is a huge decision to join a gym. If you're then kind of shepherded to one area, it's going to make it even then harder to do the type of training you've recommended. Um, yes. And I also think we don't know what to do. So it's like, even if you've created an environment, which is kind of theoretically, you know, don't like using the but sort of gender neutral and that you're like, it's not, you know, it's not, it's kind of a place where women should be able to feel welcome. It's like, I don't know how to use the equipment. I don't know what to do. I know that I can, I know that, you know, when I get on the stepper or the, or, or the treadmill, I just program in 20 minutes of intervals and it does it for me. So I'm kind of like, cool. Like, but actually if I go into that space, like, what do I do? And, and, you know, going back to that conversation we just had about pre and postnatal, am I doing it right? Will I hurt myself? And it's, do you know, it's the etiquette, isn't it, of a space. And I think if you don't, for people that get gyms, I could, I would even, you know, you've, you've heard what my background is. If I went into a new gym space, a lifting space, I would still feel quite intimidated. I would be like, I wouldn't, you want to make sure that you're not stepping on people's toes, that you're not like, you don't know what what's the etiquette around taking weights on, putting weights back, lift, like, what is that? If you just contain to your own little bit of cardio, it's it's a lot easier, isn't it? And I think that, um, I think, yeah, if you don't have the confidence and most women don't have the confidence in lifting because we haven't had the background, then then we need more than, here's space there, everyone's welcome. It's like, no, we actually need to be, we need to have specific classes. We need to be shown what to do. We need a trainer to come up to us and say, oh, like, do you know, are you all right? Can I help? Can I, can I get you started? We need that. And I guess this is where we've been critical of social media in our conversation so far, but where it certainly has popularised and made lifting weights seem a lot more achievable and, and glamorous even because we're seeing so many young women lift weights and, and, and then older women come in that way. Whereas when I first started going to the gym, you just didn't see yeah. a woman in the gym yeah. in the weights room yeah. at all. Are you continuing to see that change? And is that one of the areas you'd agree that actually social media maybe has been a force for good? Yeah, apart from the films are always from on their bottom, aren't they? Do you know, <laughs> it's always, I'm like, it's, it's still... You know, there are some brilliant people, like some brilliant people on there on the socials that I follow. And I don't know if it's just the way that my stream is filtered, but generally the women are in sports bras and hot pants and they are generally filming from the back. And it's there, it is still quite focused on the aesthetic. Even the, even if the aesthetic has changed away from super skinny, it's still on that aesthetic. And it's like, I don't look like that. <laughs> I don't look like that. And I definitely can't do a chin up. And, uh, but it is, you know, still not quite right, is it? But it's kind of like getting a, yeah. But yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to speak to you about because again, I'm, I'm trying to see the positive there, but because it's not directly affecting me, I can now totally see how this comes back to confidence, right? Which then plays into mental health, which underpins almost everything we've, we've spoken about. If the confidence isn't there and it's lacking, it doesn't matter what you see. And in many respects, what you see is actually hurting because I'm not, I'm not capable of doing that. I don't look like that. I don't belong in a gym. And then that can reinforce this negative narr narrative of what someone can't do rather than what they should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I just think we need to get more real. We just need to get more real about like, you don't look like that. You're never going to look like that. They look like that because they were born like that. That is the reality of the situation. They do not look like that because they go to the gym. Like if they didn't go to the gym, they still, broadly speaking, look like that. And so... But that that's what we need that's what we need to hear is that's what we need to hear can't speak to a former elite athlete without speaking about 
transgender sports right we, we interviewed Sharon Davis recently who's been unequivocal in her position of uh, whether or not trans women should be allowed to compete against biological women in elite sport and even at, at school level Baz if you're happy to talk about it could you give me your take on this having competed at the highest level yourself yeah um sport can't be fair and safe and I think that's where the conversation started was, you know, I don't know, three or four years ago now, even a bit, yeah, probably about three or four years ago, this, this conversation started happening and said, we need to create fair and safe sport. And it just can't, like, you can't have a sport that is fair for everyone taking part and safe for everyone taking part. And I think that women, well, I know, you know, women are, females are physiologically different. And I think that the, the, the societal conversation is is far is further advanced than the science, and I think that. But if I was sat if I was sat in a boat on a start line, and in the opposite boat was um, a transgendered woman, I would I would feel that there was an injustice served there, and I would say they're bigger, they're stronger, they have larger lung capacity than I do, and I would I would feel personally, and I would feel again that. Even in my boat, if if I hadn't got a place because a transgendered woman had got a place in that boat, I would feel that you know injustice had been served. And I think it's a really, it's a really, really toxic uh, conversation. And I think that up at, even now, people who come into this space are very opinionated and are very well, are very articulate and have a very strong conversation. So if you're not if you're not sure of what your standpoint is and you want to have a conversation, actually you can't because it feels like you should already know. And, you, and it's basically just people shouting at each other saying you're wrong like this is for, for all of these reasons. Um, I just, yeah, I think that for me, we need to soften the conversation a little bit. Like I get that these people of the, of the extreme and say, right, like let's soften the conversation a little bit. Let's not cancel anybody. Let's all attempt to start talking in here. And we're not gonna we're not gonna create this beautiful place where everyone's happy. But it's like let's hear from everyone's. Let's generally create a space where everyone can talk, as opposed to we all just shout and go right. What where are we? What can we do? But I think that. Um, the conversation is moving on, but I just think it's, it just feels a really horrible space to be a part of. And I just, and I really hate that. I can completely understand why so many current former athletes uh, don't want to get involved in the conversation because of the very obvious public backlash. So it would be unfair to expect, you know, the likes of you or, or Sharon Davis or others to constantly take the criticism here. Is this the role of governing bodies, the IOC, other fundamental institutions that govern sport, should they be the ones taking a, a, a firmer stance, sorry? And also, are, you, are we moving in the right direction there? Because it feels as though more and more now are coming out with, with categorical yeah. rules of how things can be done. I think the, the governing bodies do absolutely have to take a strong stance because otherwise, you know, I think that uh, one of the guidance last year was like, use the science to make, yeah, I think it was from the IOC, said use the science to make your decision as a sport. There is no science. So it's like, so to put that onto the shoulders of a governing body to say like, what, netball, what, what do you, like, there is no, there is no studies done in netball. Like it's kind of, you can't do that. So I think that because otherwise 
the athletes, the athletes get asked questions, the coaches get asked the questions, and they're not. That's not like you say. That is not. That is not fair to put to put that conversation onto them. Um, yeah, I think we absolutely have much stronger guidance uh, from those. You know, from from those at the top as to like what 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 the situation is, and be really really clear with that, so that actually it's just the rules are the rules. Um, but we keep the conversation happening because. It's an emerging area and, and we have to keep, we have to keep changing. We have to keep the, you know, what's, yeah, you know, we have to kind of keep the conversation going, but we also, we have to protect women's sport. It's a protected category and we have spent years and years and decades and decades getting to the place where we are now and it's taken and, and, and we have to protect that space. What would your solution be? Would it be an, an open category then? I mean, again, I hate being on the spotlight, there, but, but I, I kind of have to ask because you've been there in that position. You've sat in that boat where there could have been someone else that was physically stronger, more capable, whatever term we, we want to use. It, it, I know there's not an easy solution to this, but what would you like to see is maybe the, the next step to, to move away from the toxicity of this debate? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Paralympic sport is very well categorised and everyone understands, like, you, 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 you hit certain criteria and you're able to compete in certain different categories. I think we have to have women's sport, we have to have men's sport, and I think at the moment, you know, the, the open category seems to work quite well because it's not as though there's, like, loads of people in that, in that space, and so it's not as though we're going to have like loads of teams able to compete against each other so I think an open category does make sense right now but I think that we need to keep we just need to keep revisiting this and kind of work out are we protecting elite sport are we what are we doing grassroots sport how does that all work and also how does it play what is the effect of um like transgender women like in when you're looking at participation in places where they they won't they won't they won't show up to a swimming pool they won't show up to a football session if there are men that you know if there are if, if if you're not female and it's that kind of that whole conversation needs to happen and I think that um we can't just have it's not just who's shouting the loudest and that's the bit that I, that I, we kind of I would like to see we move away from. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.